0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world, and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello. I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I for one know that they are a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian Mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy my good friends, hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for stopping by today. Now the quiet little town of Bellevue, Texas is known today mostly as just a slow speed zone on the highway between Wichita Falls and the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But for just a short period of time, a few years back, Bellevue marked the start of an infamous run by one of the slipperiest, hard to catch out laws in American history i mean jesse james himself would have stood and stunned marvel at this guy and yet not many folks recognize his name maybe it's because he was wasn't born and raised in out west like all the other outlaws and didn't start out life with the outright intention of doing anything wrong in fact he did pretty much everything right up until life just used him as a football kick itself one too many 60 yard field goals And the man finally said, to hell with it. So set a spell and take your shoes off, and let me tell you about the Alabama Robin Hood. Reuben Houston Borough, known as Rube Borough or Rube Burros, some people said, and it depends on who you ask, but it was Borough was born in Lamar County near a town called Sullivan, Alabama on December 11th, probably 1855. Although, once again, it could have been 1854 or 1856, depending on who you ask. Now, his tombstone does say 1855, though, so that's what I'm going with. Of course, his tombstone also says Burroughs, too, and that ain't right. He was born on the farm of his parents, Alan and Mary Carolyn Terry Burrow. Rube was one of ten children, and their mother was known in the area as Dame Burrow, the Powwow Witcher. When they were little fellers, Rube and his brother Jim used to get all worked up over the tales of the outlaw Jesse James and his gang. The only trouble he ever caused as a young feller was when he put on a mask and robbed a neighbor at gunpoint at the ripe old age of 15. All of, the, of all things, his father just happened to see it happen, recognize him, and force him to take everything right back to the neighbor. And that netted him a trip to the woodshed, where even when I was still a little feller, they used to work things like that out. And in fall of 1872, just to ensure that his hands weren't idle enough to become a devil's workshop, again, he was sent to Stevensville, Texas, to work as a hand on his uncle Joel Burton's cattle ranch. Three years later, it seemed that all the hard work must have paid off as Rube was married to Virginia Alvinson. Virginia was the daughter of the prominent Wise County rancher H.B. Alvinson. And Virginia and Rube would go on to have two children. Rube's brother Jim came down to stay with him and help out in 1876 because Rube had bought himself a stretch of land soon after his marriage and established his own farm and ranch. But in 1880, Rube's first run-in with bad luck busted him across the teeth as his wife Virginia died of yellow fever. Rube didn't know how in the world he was going to run a ranch without Virginia to care for the two babies, so he took a trip back to Alabama to leave the children with his mother until he could figure out what he was gonna do next. He went back to Texas and buried himself in the ranch because it was some of the hardest work there was back then. It was incredibly hard to make a living in those days doing what Rue was doing. If just one cow died, that could mean the difference between making it and breaking it for the whole ranch. Then in 1884, well, wouldn't you know it, he married Adeline Hoover of Erath County. Now, Rube was always in pretty good shape, which led to him quickly gaining a reputation as an excellent rider and marksman. He was soon leading the band of cowboys, including two fellers named Henderson Bromley and Nep Thornton. These cowboys were known as the cream of the crop around them parts, but no matter how good you can ride and shoot, you still got to have luck on your side to make it in ranching. Good luck, that is. Rube had all the luck in the world, but it was bad. By late 1886, his ranch went belly up, and his second wife had took a trip on him again. By then, you could say Rube had had a gut full of trying to do things right and getting kicked in the gut every time he tried. That's about the time he read about the outlaw robber, Sam Bass, and felt all inspired by Sam and his gang and it was just too much for him to overcome and he formed his own outlaw gang and with his brother jim nep thornton and henderson bromley i guess rube thought that if you're gonna ride and shoot you may as well make a decent living doing it for a change something's got to give around here Uh, first thing he did was ride to what was at the time known as indian territory today it's called oklahoma on december 11th the borough gang hit a train, and got away with a staggering amount of $100 and a handful of pocket watches. They didn't go out in the middle of nowhere and try to stop the train. Oh, no, they waited right there at the station for it to pull in, then jumped off the horses and ran aboard. They didn't even cover their faces. The train belonged to the Fort Worth and Denver line, and they hit it at the aforementioned Bellevue, Texas station, right in front of God and everybody. He might... Call that the kickoff or the crime spree they went on january twenty third eighteen eighty seven and robbed a train on the Texas and Pacific line at Gordon, Texas, and took off with an unspecified amount. It was later known or was never known exactly how much they they got, but most historians think it's around thirteen hundred dollars, which is about forty two thousand in today's money. They must have figured that was a little more like it. They pounced on the train and forced it to stop on a high trestle where they would be able to take their time and just fleece everybody on the train plumb clean. That got the whole gang all worked up and they figured that line of work could be right lucrative. That is, unless you get caught. And they didn't plan on getting caught. Somewhere along the line, it occurred to Rube that they'd been looking in the wrong place. The trains carry a strong box, which was usually loaded to the gills with cash and about every valuable known to man just crammed all up in it. I don't know if Rube tracked down Sam Bask himself and asked him and you know, where they kept the money and what, but he finally figured it out somehow. That changed everything. The Burr gang then robbed a Southern Express train in Genoa, Arkansas and on, ended up winning the lottery on that one. This time, they boarded a train with guns pointed at everything, sucking wind. All the passengers started pulling out their wallets and watches and any valuables they had and holding them up for the gang to grab. That's when Rube earned his nickname, the Alabama Robin Hood. He told them to put their stuff away. He wasn't there to rob the working man. He was here for the strong box. Most sources say that they got away with around $40,000. Now, folks, that's around $1.3 million in today's money. That was one small problem with all that, and that was the Southern Express did business with the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency, and they didn't appreciate something like that happening right under their noses one bit. From that point on, Rube and company were officially on the Pinkertons' find and bring up or draped across a saddle list. I guess that meant that they made the big time After running off into the Texas Hill Country, where Rube was a little more at home, they took the long way home and just went about their business as normal to try to keep from drawing attention from folks that didn't want attention from. And in March, the Borough Boys bought them a patch of ground in the Rath County and went to work as cattlemen and farmers because I guess they were so good at it the first time. And running one ranch in the ground wasn't good enough. I guess that if you don't have a good handle on the proper operations of a ranch and farm, sooner or later you're going to run out of money to pour into it. So before you know it, Rube was calling his former gang members out of retirement along with a ranch hand named William Brock. They made plans to rob the train at Gordon again, but they were forced to turn back because high waters at the Brazos River. Did that stop Rube? Oh, you bet it didn't. On June fourth, eighteen 1887, they robbed a train in the town of Benbrook, Texas, and made off with more than $2,000, then took the long way back to their farms again to avoid suspicion. But because they didn't hit the lottery with that one, they robbed the same train again in Benbrook on September. This time they got away with a little over $2,500, and in November, Rube and his brother Jim traveled back to Lamar, Alabama to visit their family like they hadn't done a thing in the world but work hard on the range. In December, while they were still lounging around Alabama and probably figuring out that at least Rube was gonna have to come up with a little bit of Santa Claus for his boys, the Borough boys went to meet William Brock and they proceeded to rob the St. Louis, Arkansas and Texas railroad line in Genoa, Arkansas again. That time they ran off with the money that had been collected for the Illinois State Lottery. Of course, that was an unspecified amount of money that time, but most think it was another right smart bit of cash. So I guess that would be actually like winning the lottery this time, wouldn't it? What what that did was manage to end up getting the attention this time really of the Pinkerton detectives who investigated the robbery. They found evidence left by the bandits along the railroad tracks. It was the coats worn by the robbers. They somehow dropped them when they fled. Turns out they were custom-tailored coats made by special order. They traced the coats back to the maker who gave them the name William Brock. The tailor told them that William came in with some little squirrely fellow that brought the other coat. He didn't know the man's name. In fact, despite never wearing any kind of face cover, nobody knew who Rube or his brother was. But they had some questions for Mr. Brock as soon as they could find him. That was. Now, with a track record like one Rube was sporting, where every bit of sugar in his life keeps turning to shit, you'd think that he might want to call it quits and change careers before things got any worse. But there's something about being born on the edge of Appalachia that makes a man stubborn. Just ask the lovely and gracious Mrs. Bentley if you have any questions about that. Rube, Jim, and William caught the train and headed back to Alabama. I reckon to spend Christmas and some of that money. At that point, old Santa Claus would look pretty fat, I think. They didn't realize that wearing their cowboy hats pulled down low, being armed to the teeth, and wearing those long duster coats attracted uh, some kind of attention. But... About everybody on the train thought they looked like train robbers and were afraid they were about to be robbed. Somebody got word to the Pinkertons and they met the train that stop in Montgomery. Things didn't go as planned, but they did end up catching Jim while Rube shot his way out and run for it, leaving one man dead. It's not clear if it was Rube, Jim, or friendly fire that done the killing, but it really didn't matter. Somewhere along the line before that stop, William had got off the train and headed back to Texas. Rube ran into the woods and found an old cabin to hide in. Somebody saw him there, and before you know it, the Pinkertons had the place surrounded. They yelled for the man inside to come out peacefully and told him he was surrounded and there was no way out. No way out, they say. Stick around. This ain't over. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. No way out, they said. That's when Rube ran directly in the, to the, through the front window and jumped through it and started blasting. Of course, the Pinkertons dove for the tall grass and started shooting back. Bullets were flying in every direction you could imagine as Rube kept running. One of the Pinkerton's detectives was standing guard at the corner of the house with a double-barrel shotgun as Rube flew by him. He unloaded both barrels of bird shot on Rube from about six or eight feet away. Rube saw him at the last second and held up the tail of his duster coat like Batman does his cape and the man watched the shot roll right off the leather duster like water off a duck's back. The bullets went through about every piece of clothing Rube was wearing but not one of them hit him as he disappeared into the woods again running hell bent for leather. In fact, most of the information I've read through the years have the bullet holes in his clothing between 9 and 13. He must have been fast, and I mean Dion Sanders fast, to just plain outrun a whole posse of well-armed, experienced Pinkerton detectives who were trying to kill him right there. Rube took off back to Lamar County, where he was born and where his family still lived. First thing he did was try to find out any news on his brother, who was now locked up in Little Rock, Arkansas, with all kinds of police detectives trying to get information out of him. Jim would just sit there staring and laughing at him, never saying a word. The part that Jim thought was funny was the fact that they thought that he was the mastermind and leader of the train robbing gang, and that Rube, who they didn't know was Rube yet, was just one of the toadies, and they were going to catch him, and when they did, the toady was going to throw him under the stagecoach. Pinkertons crawled all over Alabama, Arkansas like maple syrup on a stack of buttermilk pancakes, and they showed up in Lamar. About everybody in Lamar knew exactly who they were looking for, but since Rube was born and raised there and was known as the Alabama Robin Hood, nobody saw nothing. Pinkertons still didn't have the name, and that made it a good bit easier to hide in plain sight. Rumor has it that they even talked to Rube, who had cleaned up and shaved his beard off. In March 1888, Rube partnered up with Leonard C. Brock, who was also known as Louis Walder. Leonard had worked with Rube as a ranch hand in Texas, and Rube convinced him to take up the name of the notorious train robber named Joe Jackson, just to strike fear in the hearts of anybody who had an idea of coming after him by making them think that he had done took up with an even more dangerous outlaw. The men set out for lamar county and traveled south through columbus mississippi before heading east and seeking shelter in a logging camp in the backwoods of baldwin county alabama In may the two headed back north to lamar county hoping that the folks chasing them had just give up and didn't have any more interest in the area after getting back home rube started working out a plan to break his brother out of jail in august rube and joe who who's now known as Joe anyway, headed for a little rock after learning that Jim Burrow was going to be moved to Texarkana, but they couldn't catch Jim's train It had left long before they got there. After he got to Texarkana, Jim wrote home to his family to send some funds for a lawyer and told them that he thought he was going to be acquitted of all charges when his trial took place next March. In late September, Jim fell ill, and by October 5th, he was dead most likely of the tuberculosis epidemic that ran rampant through jails and prisons back in. By then, the Pinkertons had finally caught up to William Brock. They had a few questions for him. Well, they didn't have to ask too hard because he sang like Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs telling them everything. So now they knew exactly who Rube Burrow was. Having failed in Jim's breakout attempt and now learning that his, his brother had died, Rube and Joe headed back to Lamar county, taking woods and on the slide to get into town on the down low. You'd think by now it would be a good time to stop, but no. On December 15th, 1888, they, and this time um, by they, I mean Nip Thompson, Nep Thompson and uh, Henderson Bromley had come back. They uh, robbed a train in Duck Hill, Mississippi and shot and killed a passenger who went full wide up tried to stop them. His murder made the national news at that time and the railroad companies were now scared of losing revenue because the safety of train travel was going down the toilet. Because the description of the shooter matched a known train robber named Eugene Bunch, the Pinkertons led out to find him rather than Rube. Rube and Joe went back to Lamar County again. For Rube's entire family provided him with supplies and a safe house through the spring of 1889, and they kept watch for detectives and bounty hunters for him, too. All went smooth as silk for Rube and Joe until the first week of July when Rube shot the local postmaster for refusing to hand over a suspicious package. Now, Rube had ordered a disguise, which included a fake beard and mustache. Somehow, It got sent to the wrong place and, of all things, somehow got open. The postmaster put two and two together and waited for this Mr. Man to show up and claim his package. He just bit off a little more than he could chew with Rube Burrow. Rube was mad enough to burn the whole post office down if he needed to. But that was the day everything changed for Rube. In the aftermath of that fiasco, three of Rube's relatives were locked up for aiding in the betting Outlaws. The charges were soon dropped and they were sent on their way. Still safe in the hidey hole of the Burrow family, the men stayed right where they were until September. During the first week of September, Rube and Joe were joined by Rube's cousin of all people, Rube Smith, and they headed southwest to scout out a site for their next train robbery. They robbed the mail car and express car of the Mobile Mobile and Ohio Railroad line in Bucatana, Mississippi. They got away with another several thousand dollars and then ran back to Lamar County again. By November, the police and bounty hunter presence was making Rube uh, a little bit nervous. With the help of his father, Rube and Joe bought him an ox cart and took off to Flumaton in Escambia County. And they got there on December 14th, 1889. Just a few days later, Rube Smith and his associate James McClung were caught in Armory, Mississippi, right in the middle of trying to rob a train. The men were dragged off to Aberdeen, Mississippi and stuck in the pokey. For the next two months, detectives beat the bushes all over Al- South Alabama for Rube and Joe. One of the Pinkertons said, that Rube was so dumb he didn't know where he was going. He was just running, and that's why it's so hard to catch. That's where the insult of calling somebody a Rube came from. I still heard it quite a bit when I was a little feller. But uh, in early February, a detective questioned a ferryman at a crossing near Milton, Florida, and learned that Rube and his companion had split up and after reaching Flummaton, and that Rube and his... had been working at a logging camp in Santa Rosa County, Florida, just across the Yellow River. Now, once again... Rube smelled something, smelled him coming, and somehow figured out that there was about to be an ambush somewhere along the, his grain hauling route. Now, when that all went down, there was no Rube Burr to be found. He took off again. Joe, on the other hand, was captured on a train in Fernbank Station in Lamar County, where he had traveled to maybe try to re- reunite with Rube after his arrest he was taken to prison in memphis tennessee to wait his nice meeting with the judge and 12 of his peers on september 1st 1890 detectives learned of the robbery in an LN train in pollard that apparently rube had pulled off all by himself detectives traced him back to a camp in santa rosa county florida and took up watch on a home of the family that rube had been staying with family got word to rube somehow and he ran for it and lived in the backwoods. So outside Demopolis and Marengo County, Rube got recognized by a man who, a man who tricked him into stopping by a friend's house for dinner and who, with the help of the friend, pounced on held Rube until the detectives got there. Yeah, it didn't come easy. It took five men to wrestle Rube into restraints and he was still about to drag them all out of the cabin door before they could get him all tied up. Rube was then tied to a horse and taken to Linden in Marengo County Seat. And on the morning of October 9, 1890, Rube hadn't been in custody for a half a day when he attempted to escape by getting the police to untie his hands so he could eat, then pulling a hidden pistol on them. He talked and joked with them until they actually started liking him. He told them that he had some ginger cookies in his backpack and he would share it with them if they'd just bring it to him. Now, he made his way to the front of the jail where he wasn't about to leave without his lever-action rifle that they took from him when they dragged him in. He got into a shootout with a local merchant, Jefferson Davis Carter, who he knew was holding his rifle. He told Mr. Carter to hand over his rifle or he's going to blow his head off. Mr. Carter brought his gun out smoking and so did Rube. Rube emptied his pistol, striking Mr. Carter once in the abdomen before Mr. Carter had one shot left and shot Rube in the chest as he was turning to run, and that killed Rube instantly. Now, Rube's body was shipped back by train to the Lamar County where he was born, making several stops along the way so the public could see the body all propped up outside the boxcar. And there's several pictures that exist. You can probably see it on the website, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, on Facebook. But his weapons were also put on display in Memphis, Tennessee, which attracted huge crowds. When his body reached Sullivan, it was thrown off the train, landing at the feet of his parents, and that broke open the coffin, and Rube went rolling right in the dirt, almost on top of his daddy's feet. The delivery men said that they were sorry to bring him back that way, and laughed it off as they got back on the train. Rube was then repackaged and buried in Fellowship Cemetery. Exactly one month later, former gang member William Brock leapt to his death from the top floor of the penitentiary in Jackson, Tennessee, after receiving a life sentence for his momentous work in the Burrow Gang. Rube was soon pretty much forgot about it, except to folks like me who like to read this kind of thing, and I do that so I can tell you all about it. So, I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to Follow or subscribe on whichever media you're listening to so you can get notified of new episodes. Come on over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we talk about everything Appalachian or about anything else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I'll see you then.